Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Free Speech Union podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to get to sit down with uh, Grant Guilford, the former Vice Chancellor of Victoria University. I don't think you and I knew each other very well, Grant, when I was there, but uh, how many how many students are at Victoria now? Over 20,000, I think. Yeah, so. there is. There's 22,000 at the moment, so it's quite a few. Exactly, yeah. But um, I'm I'm proud to have, have been able to study there and, and really do appreciate the opportunity to get to sit down with you as well. Now, uh, free speech within the university and academic context is um, is quite an intense conversation at the moment. And so uh, I would love to just hear from your perspective as someone who held a very senior position uh, within that environment and, and dialogued, obviously, uh, frequently with other vice chancellors around the country. What is your perception of free speech uh, generally and, and more specifically uh, in universities at the moment? Well, generally, um, I think it's such a critical feature of uh, a modern liberal society that we have free speech to be able to debate and contest ideas and to examine them and to find their strengths and weaknesses and to evolve a pathway forward. So it is something that we have to protect and we have to work to protect that. It just won't uh, won't just protect itself. So mm. uh, hence my um, interest in uh, appearing on your podcast, uh, Jonathan, really in the sense that uh, we all have to play our roles in, in protecting uh, that uh, free speech as critical as it, may, as it is to our society. Um, in universities, I think free speech is alive and well. Um, the um, universities in New Zealand, anyway, speaking for here, uh, have vice chancellors who believe strongly in academic freedom and institutional autonomy. I do separate those two concepts slightly, and we might have time to come back to that uh, a bit later on. There, and all of us write constantly to people who complain about our academic staff. Uh, for saying things that they find disagreeable. And we write quite simply, uh, quoting the protections under the Education Act or the Education and Training Act, as it now is, um, which provides our staff the chance to be that critic and conscience role and to mm. challenge received wisdom and to state uh, new ideas and at times unpopular ideas. Mm. And with that, there is no, no requirement under the Act for them to be right. Um, that's that doesn't come with the territory. You can't uh, criticise an academic for saying something, which once eventually proves to be wrong. Um, but we do expect uh, when those academics do speak that they do speak um, honestly, uh, with integrity, uh, with fairness, um, with um, respect for the audience, and uh, um, and that sense of responsibility of their words. Mm. And that too is enshrined in the Act as well. So it's not an unfettered right. You you have a um, you have a set of ethical responsibilities that go along with that. Um, so for most of the um, the staff in the university, they would have experienced the support of the vice chancellors when they've been out and about saying things that might be disagreeable. When they haven't received that support, it's normally around the manner in which that's been. Um, Conveyed, so it's sort of a, a disrespectful conversation that's up someone, upset someone, as opposed to the content of that um, uh, conversation, or something that maybe some may be concerned about misrepresentation. So, 
in general, our case law suggests that academic um, freedom should generally be expressed in your area of expertise um, to be honestly expressed as academic freedom. And so if you're if you're off chatting about another area, uh, you're most welcome to do that, like any member of the public is, but you shouldn't be hiding behind your professorial title or whatever to claim mm-hmm. uh, extra knowledge in that uh, regard. That would be viewed as dishonest. So from time to time we get those conversations. But generally speaking, academic staff are encouraged and supported to be out there. And and at my old university, we went as far as trying to encourage that by ensuring that people who engaged with society, engaged with our issues, uh, were able to refer to that in their promotional um, applications. Uh, And it was viewed as a positive to be out there and engaging uh, with our city and with our world. So from that perspective, I think it's it's good. I think within the institutions, it's, it, people feel reasonably protected. From the university, there are a lot of other pressures on staff, though, that come to come to bear. And I think when we come to talk about your survey, uh, some of those may be apparent in some of the responses that you've received there. Mm-hmm. Th- that, those are really interesting uh, comments there and, and, and heartening as well. I'm glad to hear uh, from kind of the senior leadership of those that are that are overseeing our tertiary education that there is that commitment and, and the view to it being such a, a foundational right. Uh, you, you mentioned at the very beginning that free speech is something that needs protecting and especially within, uh, within the university context that it's impossible to have uh, meaningful education without the freedom to disagree and to seek out uh, new thoughts. In the context that we currently exist in, who do you think it is that we need to be protecting free speech from? Where are threats against free speech coming from, for the most part? In my in my experience, so if I if I can speak from that, Jonathan, rather than just sort of in general terms, um, it was quite a broad base of opposition to free speech. So, um, and from sometimes from quite surprising quarters. So, you would find um, opposition from uh, government. Uh, and particularly where it was perceived that uh, that free speech was trampling on government initiatives, Mm. you would um, find uh, some criticism and attempts to uh, constrain what people said from uh, religious groups, uh, from diplomatic quarters, so from other Mm -hmm. other governments, if you like, and and I experienced that quite frequently in Wellington. you would sometimes see uh, pressures on the university applied from the corporate sector, and that was generally around um, people holding strong views uh, that were counter to uh, a corporate or a, or a sector of society's direction. So like farming, for example, would be one one, one example where we, we ran into a few problems. Right. Um, so quite broad-based. Um, mm-hmm. And then also from staff themselves. Um, so there is a, a sense within a university that um, – Card-carrying academics should primarily be out there speaking in their area of expertise, and so when people strayed from that, there was a bit of self-policing about, you know, what, why are you the physicist out there speaking about um, epidemiology, for example? And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, have you have you um, clearly defined that that's not your area of expertise before getting out and speaking? So, so there is that hesitation as well, and that partly is from other academic staff, but also partly from the academic staff member themselves. Um, We do tend to be quite precise people and want to be um, very accurate in what we say. And so as soon as we stray away from our area of expertise, we become a little bit reluctant to speak. So those are sort of some of the things that I I would say 
are around us. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's interesting, and and lots of material uh, for us to get into there. Uh, but going back slightly, you, you referenced the, uh, the the Education Act, uh, the Education and Training Act, as it is now, uh, following the amendments in twenty twenty. And within that, particularly in uh, the redrafted legislation, is this emphasis on pastoral care and and the responsibility of the university to provide um, a, a safe place uh, for students and for staff also. Uh, as someone who was a leader in this space do you find there is a I, I don't want to say a contradiction but perhaps a tension there at times between uh the the fact that free speech allows for very robust and, and perhaps even um you know we could use the word harmful debates you know uh where where someone holds a very strong perspective on no matter what it is for someone to assault that intellectually could easily cause quote-unquote harm, do you think that uh, the way that legislation has been drafted makes it difficult to then both walk with the uh, the pursuit of knowledge and, and the willingness for free speech in mind as well as safety for students and for staff? Yeah, look, it's, it's, a, it's a very um, interesting question. I, I think um, if I can step back and just put that in the context of institutional autonomy for a start. So um, one point I, I have made to you in the past is that I support the idea that academic freedom is alive and well in universities, but the platform upon which academic freedom is expressed is institutional autonomy. If the if the institution is an autonomous of um, the influences around it, primarily government, but also um, uh, uh, religious groups or corporate pressures, uh, diplomatic pressures from other governments, etc., then the staff itself don't have that platform to express their views mm-hmm. because pressures delivered down through the the non-autonomous organisation to them. And there's a number of pressures on that autonomy of institutions. And the first one is funding. So um, by government controlling uh, virtually all the funding streams into New Zealand universities, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty hard for those universities to feel very confident about flagrantly, uh, flagrantly departing from um, the, uh, the government's party line, if you like. Uh, we found the, the no surprises rule starting to be um, applied to university leadership as well. Uh, we are not uh, members of the public service where that's become mm. enshrined and perhaps overused even there. Uh, but it wasn't uncommon for me to be uh, getting um, ministerial officers uh, suggesting that perhaps I should pull my head in because um, uh, that was something that surprised the minister, minister some comment mm-hmm. I made, mm-hmm. which was news to me that I, that. Um, you were accountable in, to them in any way. Yeah, exactly. So that, that was a, an, an issue. Um, and I think also um, the way universities are governed now, the uh, relatively small governance uh, and the councils for ministerial appointments only for um, uh, other uh, members of council who potentially can be chancellors means that often the university's um, ministerial appointments are the chancellors of the universities and there's sort of a link back from there uh, to the government that appointed them. So so those are all risks. And then um, with the Pastoral Care Act, uh, a number of our staff have been very concerned about the point that you raised um, because universities under the Act up until then were teaching and research institutions. Um, and this idea that we're suddenly responsible for pastoral care um, to the level with which was described in, that, um, in, that, in those changes uh, is quite concerning because of the difficulty in living up to those expectations, but also just from where that has come from. 
it seems to be derived from a view of universities as secondary schools as opposed to universities as tertiary uh, research and teaching mm. places in which the independent learning takes uh, uh, centre stage. And we are um, all of a sudden responsible for the health and well-being of our students across the board, whether that be someone who's a 40-year-old engineering student coming online into, into a Wellington course from Hamilton or whether that's a, a vulnerable 18-year-old in our halls of residence. And so, yes, it does create some more risks for uh, the idea that when we, when we have challenging discussions that we need to protect our students from the harm of that discussion as perceived by them, that sense of outrage of coming across a new idea or, or something that challenges their sense of self. So time will tell where all that goes. We've sought assurances from the government, and the government uh, clearly um, does not have those sort of intentions, at least stated to us. It's a well-meaning piece of legislation uh, drawn out of perceived negligence in um, some halls of residence. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yes, in my view and in the view of a number of our staffs, it has ended up in um, some bureaucratic overreach into universities. During your extensive career at universities, uh, both at Victoria and and, and more broadly, uh, have you ever come across uh, research questions or conversations that you think are intentionally harmful? You know, it's it's an interesting context and and, and a concept that uh, there are these harmful ideas or harmful conversations. And and the way you characterize it there, of course, the way people perceive those ideas or that speech interrelating with their perception of their self I can see how they can see that as harmful, but uh, it, it sets an, an, an incredibly um, problematic standard if people's subjective perception of safety comes into play with uh, what questions we should be allowed to ask. So in your experience, did you come across any intentionally malicious questioning or speech uh, at universities? Um, no, I, I, I can I can say that I haven't. I think the majority of the debates that occurred um, on the campuses that I've been involved in were they began with a well-meaning perspective. They may have created um, offence and they may have indeed created harm. Um, mm but it was generally not the intention of the speaker to do so. Um, But because of uh, um, their, um, I suppose, lack of um, reading the room, for want of a better phrase, of understanding who they were speaking to and uh, uh, the um, different interpretations of what they were saying, uh, they have indeed um, created upset and damaged um, people's uh, sense of self-worth in, in the conversation. And I've seen that around um, around um, sexism um, mm. and I've seen that around racism. Um, and so it does occur, but in, it's, there's not a lot of um, intentional harm out there in the university mm. sector, I don't believe, yeah. 
And 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 perhaps uh, I I don't know what what your experience in the broader culture is like nowadays, but perhaps that's a, a quite an interesting point for some of our listeners. In that, I think the way it's presented at times is that the, the these perspectives or the speeches is set out to intentionally cause harm, to cause division. And in in my experience, uh, certainly at universities, I never came across a situation where someone was seeking to provoke harm in someone else's life. Uh, is it? Worth the risk to potentially harm or to cause offence in, in the pursuit of knowledge, Do, and and can we have a university as we've known it up until this point without accepting that that provocative ideas will disrupt at some level? Um, look, I, I think it's it's really important to protect that ability to to debate contentious issues. Um, I think it's reasonable to um, prepare your students for that. So, um, uh, for example, one one sensitive area that that I've had experience of in universities is in our um, humanities courses when mm. we're speaking about um, the negative impacts on people of um, uh, sexual harassment and rape and in 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 similar um, uh, horrendous offences. Um, for someone who comes into the lecture theatre, the victim of rape, and then suddenly finds um, a, a lecture theatre full of people debating uh, rape, um, who came in there without the knowledge that that was what was going to be into the lecture, um, and therefore hasn't had a chance to actually sit down and get prepared and thought through that, then okay, those sort of things are reasonable, where we just ensure that when we are getting into contentious topics, that potentially might be the shared lived experience of of our students or staff that there should be a, an element of, of, of warning um, mm. so people can be prepared and decide whether to be there or not to experience that. Um, but, yes, as we challenge each other's ideas, we do often create um, a level of, an, of, of offence, and that's, of course, quite a personal reaction to what's being said as well as um, in the delivery of how it is, is said. Um, my view is that we we can differentiate that from hate speech in the sense that there is no intent to vilify, to demean, uh, to um, reduce someone's manner, if you like. Um, you aren't playing the person. Uh, you are trying to play the ball, a particular issue. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that would appear to be a very grey line at at. Uh, at a certain point, though, and so I find that interesting. W- w- are you saying that uh, hate speech necessitates intent? I think it, it helps um, identify the speech as hate speech if you are intentionally going out to humiliate, to divide, to set people against one another. If that's your modus operandi, that's your reason for speaking. Then, yeah, I think you're 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 more likely to be labelled as as participating in hate speech. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting. Now, if I can, I, I'll contextualise this discussion within some of the experiences of the Free Speech Union. Now, our listeners will be aware of the fact that uh, regularly we we hold events on different university campuses, and in fact, in uh, in April this year, the uni- uh, Victoria University hosted us in Wellington. There, Carl Dufresne. Uh, spoke at an event there, and there were calls from from student and staff uh, as well to cancel this event, to not uh, host uh, allegedly a racist man like Carl Dufresne. Now, of course, no comment or statement that he ever made, no uh, publication that he ever released uh, that would prove him a racist could be shown, but this was 
with their claim. Victoria University uh, maintained our booking and, and we were able to hold the event. And I, I think that reflects on them very well. Um, other organizations and universities uh, were not so uh, integrous, if I can say that, into the concept of free speech. Uh, Auckland University of Technology decided uh, two days before the event to withdraw our permission, uh, given the fact that we were platforming uh, so-called uh, trans-exclusionary radical feminist Daphna Whitmore, who uh, ran uh, Speak Up for Women. Can I ask your perspective, as, as a vice-chancellor, if, uh, if a provocative and, frankly, annoying organisation like the Free Speech Union uh, wanted to platform uh, a, a perspective that can be characterised as uh, as exclusive or, or harmful to uh, transgender individuals in our country, how would, do you think you would have handled that situation? Would you have handled it differently to the way uh, Vice-Chancellor Salisa did up in, in uh, AUT? Yeah, hard to talk about that particular incident, Jonathan, because um, I'm not quite familiar with all the details, but the way that I would handle those things and, and have in the past is, we had a, a, a policy that um, uh, the the person or the, the group with, with the speaker needed to be invited onto the campus by one of our academic staff. So it um, it wasn't that we were just uh, public facilities for rent, if you like, because sure. coming back to this idea of being an autonomous organisation, uh, we are an autonomous organisation, and, and how we use our facilities is our decision. And it's not it's it's not uh, as some people mistakenly think uh, an open taxpayer funded um, rights to come onto a university campus and use our facilities. But if one of our staff um, chose to extend an invitation to a group, then in general we would support that invitation and allow that um, uh, event to go ahead. The only exception would be, uh, well, there's a couple of exceptions, I suppose. If one, if if the person was clearly someone who uh, had that hate speech agenda that we spoke about before, that was had shown lots of, of intent to cause harm to people, then we would speak to the academic staff, try and understand what 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 it was about. And, and, and sometimes still go forward because um, often what it was about was exposing students to these very challenging ideas mm, in, a, in mm. a safer environment because you can't exclude people from these ideas. They're going to come across them. That's but if, if they are harmful ideas, um, then listening isn't the same thing as agreeing um, and having those ideas uh, debated and the weaknesses of them exposed and all the strengths of them exposed is a critical part of being a university. But we just would make sure that the academic staff member involved had, had all of that under control, that uh, that people were aware of what they were coming to, um, and that if there was any genuine security concerns, that we were able to ensure that we made a security team available there mm, in case mm. there was um, uh, a, a risk of physical safety uh, to, to attendees. And the other thing about that was that we had maintained a good relationship with the police, so we were in general able to make a a, a reasonably informed judgment about that particular side of things. Uh, is there going to be a riot here? Um, is there going to be someone hurt uh, on our facilities? Um, and the police would give us a pretty good guide about whether they thought this was a genuine risk or not. That's just sort of the way we approached it. So, and 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 just suffered the fact that. 
that that a lot of people uh, at times were upset by that, but others uh, were um, pleased that we were open to those sort of things. Um, but sometimes the pressures are quite strong. So I've had a lot of pressure from uh, diplomatic groups within Wellington saying you shouldn't have allowed that person to speak because they represent a terrorist organisation or mm-hmm. whether, you know, Palestinian, Israeli, Indonesian, uh, 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 and um, and on it goes. Uh, Chinese um, governments all have very strong views on who and sh- who and shouldn't speak on a on a university campus. But again, we just go through that simple process, stick to it, mm. make sure that we've got safety managed, and generally move forward with it. Mm, mm. it it's um, it's interesting that this concept of hate speech, which keeps emerging, uh, where before you said uh, that. Um, in your experience, you haven't really come across uh, ideas or speech that have been intentionally seeking to cause harm, though they may acknowledge that they will. Uh, and, and yet also this connection to hate speech, uh, which is uh, intentionally provocative to cause harm. Is that to say you haven't come across hate speech in your tenure at universities? Um, so my comments on that were related to university staff. I don't think, well, I certainly haven't come across university staff who intentionally stand up in a lecture uh, to create um, division, um, hate, or uh, vilify people. That's just not the type of people that mm-hmm. um, I've had anything to do with in universities. I certainly have come across that in the wider world. Um, sure, so right. I don't dismiss the fact that that occurs. But no, uh, whilst I have seen harm uh, and I have seen hurt and I have seen upset um, from what university staff members have said within universities, I haven't seen an intent to do that. Mm, uh, mm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because um, you, uh, as the free speech union, we're, we're not free speech absolutists. It's not to say that anyone can say anything at any time, you know. And, and certainly uh, our opposition to the hate speech rules, which uh, was quite significant and led to the government shelving those uh, intended reforms, uh, is not to say that hate speech doesn't exist. Of course, hate speech exists. Uh, it's 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 a an ignorant comment to claim that it doesn't. It's simply to say, what do we do about that? What is the best response to the fact that there is hate in our society? And that's the point, really, that the issue with hate speech is the hate, not the speech. Uh, silence the speech, and you you still have the issue of hate in our society. Talking within the academic context, uh, a number of of uh, your academic colleagues considered the uh, the letter by what is now being called the Listener Seven, the the group of academics, uh, mostly from the University of Auckland, who wrote in defence of science in the Listener magazine, uh, that that constituted hate speech. Uh, that that uh, and, and and you know it would be interesting to hear your thoughts around whether they were speaking in their uh, their own. Uh, expertise, a point you've continued uh, to make. But do you think that that sort of speech, which which provokes um, questions around cultural legitimacy uh, and, and its interaction with uh, what was called Western science, uh, do you think that that is um, valid to call that hate speech? No, I, I don't. I, I don't think that would have qualified. Um, uh, the, the background, I, I think, to the... Um, to the to the letter um, was subsequently explained by Michael Corbalis and um, mm. and and I, I think um, whilst I, I didn't necessarily support the the the, the letter, um, I could understand the motives as being more of concern about um, their perception that science was being 
portrayed as a negative force in society as opposed to a positive force in society. So again, mm-hmm. example of perhaps what we're talking about before, I think the the reasons for writing the letter were, were well-meaning. Um, no doubt um, they overstepped the mark in terms of uh, putting their stamp on what they thought Mataronga Māori was about, and there's no, there's never much value in these debates and trying to um, argue that one knowledge system is better than another, um, or what is science and what's not. I've been through many of these, and um, <laughs> uh, know that is maths a science? And you'll find people dying on a, in a ditch on arguing over that. Is social science as a science? Is there more than one science? Is there more than one scientific methodology? Is applied science a science, or is it just science that's applied? And on it goes, and so. Uh, Mataranga Māori uh, has elements of science uh, embedded in a uh, cultural context and that attaches um, meaning uh, for Māori. Uh, the natural sciences from which uh, these guys who wrote the letter predominantly were drawn um, uh, attempts to divorce itself from a cultural, religious context and be universal in nature. Uh, that has advantages. The disadvantage, of course, is it can lose meaning and significance to those in society. Mm. And so, of course, we mm. then need social sciences and we need a way to actually reconnect it all again. And so you can go round and round and round and debate all of these things. Um, but I, I guess that's the point, is as long as the debate is is open, uh, you, can, you can die in whatever ditch it is that you want to argue till the cows come home on a certain point. Uh, the, the concern that we as the Free Speech Union had was that there was a, a, a troubling number of academics in New Zealand who insisted that that debate should not be had, that uh, the, the perspective that was being presented was illegitimate and ergo should not be voiced at all. And and this had some very extreme uh, consequences for some of those authors, including uh, Professor Robert Nola and Professor Garth Cooper, who were both fellows of the Royal Society. And the Royal Society uh, initiated discipline disciplinary proceedings to try and remove them from the society uh, and and a long story short ultimately decided that was illegitimate do you think this does reflect on that that perspective of uh, free speech in the university that you mentioned at the beginning uh, around actually a, a broad commitment to debate and to being willing to hear opposing perspectives yeah i i think so it's the um it was unfortunate that um, the uh, debates took on the level of rancor that it did. I think it was unfortunate at the start that um, the letter strayed away from defence of science into what is Mataronga Māori, which was outside the expertise of the people, uh, all the people who wrote. Uh, I, as I understand it, I, I know most of them, but not all of them. Um, and so that uh, left those um, uh, uh, authors open to criticism that uh, they just didn't understand what it was that they were writing about. Um, so, yeah, it uh, does. I'm sorry, does, I'm, I'm just, I'm just yeah. going to um, just hold you to that for one second because uh, Dr. Um, uh, Gareth Cooper uh, lectured uh, now, now a, a biologist and, and a medical uh, educator, but he he educated for over thirty years on what Matauranga Maori meant in in medical sciences. So so uh, is this one of those moments where we, we we say you're spreading misinformation? Is that yes, what this is? I was then. I saw you did right. <laughs> I'd forgotten Gareth was part of the uh, um, of the team. Yeah. 
it, it, it seems that we, we find ourselves in a position in, in academic uh, circles uh, uh, where the intention is there. That, but, but in practice, we see more and more encroachment against free speech. And, and you d- distinguished before uh, between free speech and academic freedom, and that's entirely legitimate. There is, of course, a difference between the right to say uh, whatever you really want, uh, however ignorant you may be, and academic freedom, which which defend someone who has studiously applied themselves in that context. Uh, but when the Free Speech Union conducted a survey of uh, over 17,000 academics in the country, uh, we found that up to 50% of them felt more constrained than free. So on a scale of 1 to 10, they rated themselves lower than 5 on certain key issues. And then there were issues like ability to uh, present perspectives counter to the Treaty of Waitangi, or uh, to comment on issues such as sex and gender. And uh, these are perhaps two trite examples. They go, oh, of course there's, uh, there's disagreement in these areas. We know that these are, uh, these are fractious uh, subjects, but aren't they crucial for how we go forward as a nation? How, how, if, if such a large proportion of our academics feel constrained in their academic freedom to con- contribute or to comment on these subjects, does that actually reflect positively on the way the universities are allowing for these debates? Yeah, look, uh, it's it's interesting, isn't it? The the results of the work. Um, I think um, you. When I looked at the results, I I was actually um, pleasantly surprised um, <laughs> about the uh, the level of um, uh, of of support that people were able to do the things that the mm-hmm. legislation intended them to do so engaging research of choice and the like criticizing the yeah. government etc yeah um there were a number of aspects that were very positive absolutely very positive, yeah and then when you look at um uh, some of the other questions where scores were a bit lower like fe- uh, freedom to regulate subject matter and uh, examinations and the like um I think a number of comments in the survey explained those mm-hmm. lowest scores and that you're part of a curriculum and so you're not just a lone agent. Your sure. aim is to develop a, a body of knowledge and uh, and um, cross-cutting competencies in some students and that takes coordination with your academic colleagues and it takes mm-hmm. a level of consistency in the way you examine. And so those weren't absolute freedoms, if you like, so that's, that's easy to explain. And then I guess when you come down to the, the ones you just touched on, gender and sex issues, I'd be interested to know why um, someone didn't rate that they were free to comment on that. My suspicion is that it it wouldn't be because they're worried the Vice-Chancellor might tell them off. Um, It would be more because they just don't feel able to comment because it's not their area of expertise or they don't, and this would be the the interesting bit, whether they they just don't want to tread in that area (laughs) because it's so sensitive. Um, And similarly with the treaty issues and the like. So no one, to my knowledge, in a university hierarchy would be on someone's case for commenting on a treaty issue. Um, But uh, there is is a lot of self-regulation in uh, academics who do not want to speak on areas outside their expertise. And so that may be a, a reason for for those results, um, but hard to know. You'd have to sort of dig a bit under the, the uh, hood there and unpack those of results. Of course, and yeah. we were the first to admit that these results probably raised more questions than they did provide it's answers. Crazy, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. But but these these are important questions to address. Do you think there is anything to be said for uh, the experiences of academics in other countries, particularly those very similar to our context in Canada and the United Kingdom, where we we 
it almost seems every week there's another story of an academic who is is explicitly being censored, uh, whether by a university hierarchy, there are examples of that, but probably more frequently by colleagues and, and by students as well. How, you know, th- this is not an, an institutional question as much, though, as a cultural question then. Is that relevant to our, our conversation here in New Zealand? Yeah, look, I, I think I think it is. I think um, uh, I, it, I mentioned before that I would often write letters in support of of our staff who have been criticised by someone who got upset by what they said. Um, and it, I did notice when I did that that there, there often was a level of surprise that the Vice-Chancellor was prepared to do that, as though there was a, 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 a sort of a, a misunderstanding that um, the Vice-Chancellor of the country would, would want people not to say anything contentious. And, of course, the, the opposite is true. We love seeing our students in the streets protesting. We love seeing our staff out there saying contentious things. So, so, so perhaps those uh, international experiences have negatively influenced the confidence of our own staff. When you do dig into it, though, and you look at New Zealand case law, um, there are some limits on academic freedom, but but people are quite free. Mm. Um, the, the case law is mainly around being outside your area of expertise, um, uh, not taking enough time or care to actually uh, verify what you're saying uh, is true in the sense of um, uh, continually repeating things that are untrue and and not taking any care at all about that. So whilst you are able to say things and be wrong about them, uh, consistently misrepresenting things is is uh, is not uh, good in the eyes of the court. Um, there are some elements of trust and confidence uh, that come through employment law that do fetter some uh, speech uh, from academics. Uh, but not man, not many. Um, you have to be ensure that your criticism is um, both reasoned and fair. So that was a, mm-hmm. a, a, some case uh, law from New Zealand. Um, and there are um, you have to be cautious about the way you express them. So the uh, email uh, to a thousand people that you keep repeating, uh, the courts have taken a dim view on that over over the years. Um, and so they just sort of, I suppose, conclude that through the courts that there is a countervailing responsibility with academic freedom. But in general, people get the support of their institutions and um, the the most negative um, uh, reactions to the, to their expression of, of their ideas uh, tends to be from social media and and people reacting against what they've yeah, said. Sure. And, and at times that can be really, really vicious and at times it can in- incur uh, uh, physical threats of harm to them mm-hmm. or their family. Um, and so being able to respond to that as a vice-chancellor is also something that I've had to do over the years and right. make sure that we've done our best to protect our people from the threats that um, others make against them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, in a uh, situation we've been dealing with recently was with uh, the University of Auckland, where a, a lecturer there uh, wrote an assignment to uh, their 200 level students, which required them to uh, write on uh, the issue of transgenderism and what it would mean in this cultural context. And within this uh, this assignment, it said any perspective that is critical of gender will be automatically failed. 
And we contacted the dean of of the school asking if they thought this was appropriate. They said it was certainly not, and and there is a disciplinary proceeding in place there. As a vice chancellor, if if uh, one of the academics under your leadership had written an assignment like this, would you have seen that as uh, opposed to free speech? And what would your response have been in that situation? Um, yeah, well, fortunately, vice chancellors don't uh, don't tend to get involved in um, in the um, the decisions made by academic staff around. Um, what they teach and how they teach it. This has the exception, and this also probably showed in your surveys, has been recently in the COVID epidemic where we've had government regulations that we've had to impose on our staff around how they teach in terms of online and the like. Um, but generally, uh, vice chancellors do their best to keep away from that because uh, that isn't the last thing New Zealand universities need is uh, someone with a corporate responsibility determining what people teach and how they teach it. Is this, uh, does it speak to a culture in an institution though? It speaks to that to, uh, it can do. It's, it, so so what, what we've done in, in Tehiranga Waka is to ensure that those decisions are faculty decisions um, and that they're made by academic boards, uh, groups of academics together. Um, so I would not be called upon to make that judgment. That judgment will be made um, in, in the academic uh, um by academics and academic colleagues uh, of that individual. But uh, if I was a part of that faculty board to answer your question, yeah, I wouldn't have mm. found that acceptable. Um, mm. I think that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to channel people's thinking in that regard. We are trying to, to get people to express um, their own thinking and find a way through these difficult issues. Mm-hmm. One of those uh, difficult issues that a, a term that we we frequently hear nowadays uh, is is social cohesion, uh, and and uh, to me, I'll be frank, I find it a slightly bizarre term. Uh, it, it's not exactly. Um, it doesn't exactly fill you with warm fuzzies, I think. It, it, it seems quite abstract and not something you'd hear in in common parlance. But um, can I ask you, what does social cohesion mean to you? Well, you're talking to um, a scientist here, so uh, one who, someone who's steeped in evolutionary, um, uh, well, I suppose that the, the understands that the impact of evolution on on the human condition, and we're social beings, um, and so social beings um, uh, have exercised their success over the years by being cohesive societies. Um, in all, all, all cohesive societies, there are um, people labelled as the cheaters. Those are the people who um, don't contribute back to the society but draw benefits from being part of that society. And you can find that all the way down to microbes uh, mm. uh, in, in terms of the history of evolution. And so societies and social beings do need to be cohesive to be successful, Um we do need to care about one another. We needed to show empathy and, and have responsibility for others. So I think that's what it's driving at, that sense of um, it's not just all about me. Um, it's also about my um, neighbours, my colleagues, my friends, uh, uh, my my nation, my world. Um, we're all in this together and, and together we are better. So, mm-hmm. so that's what it means to me. Mm-hmm. And and I hope I don't misuse this term because I was a, a social scientist, not a scientist. But but this kind of speaks a little bit to the, that notion of the selfish of selfish gene. Is that correct? Where there there is a tendency, perhaps, to uh, 
to promote oneself over the benefit of others. Uh, is that social cohesion possible to achieve uh, through a regulation or mandate, do you think? Or is it? do we have to be more creative with a, uh, as microbes or within our society uh, to actually accomplish that uh, cooperation? Um, look, I think that the, the, the author of The Selfish Gene um, has uh, said on many occasions that his book was uh, poorly named. So what, what <laughs> uh, so we can, uh, it's about fitness, evolutionary fitness, and, and uh, the more um, there's a multitude of strategies for getting your genes uh, into the next generation, and one of those is social cohesion. So if, if we have successful societies, we're more likely to, to to have long living societies. In other words, genes mm-hmm. go on to into the next generation. Um, successful societies are unlikely to, to come from um, the, uh, the, the sort of survival of the fittest type idea, where um, uh, you stamp on another because you're stronger and you put your genes into into the into the future. We're, we're dependent on one another, and uh, and that's the strategy we chose. Now, um, or, or we we fell upon uh, as a as a species, if you like. Uh, I don't think someone actually chose it. Right. Um, so there are other strategies out there, but that's the one social social beings like us um, have utilised to get to where we've got to. Um, shared, sharing our experiences, our knowledge, and our cultures, um, and looking after one another. That's that's very interesting, and uh, and and of course, this whole notion of social cohesion has been popularised recently uh, in association with the hate speech laws that the government initially proposed. Uh, just as we come to a conclusion here, do you think that these hate speech laws will would be uh, productive and useful within an academic context, or do you think uh, there would be concern that they would shut down debate, that they would make these already fraught subjects uh, even more difficult? And actually inhibit the purpose of our uh, tertiary education institutions. I think the, the difficulty we've got is the one that you touched on at the start, and that is the definition of, of mm. hate speech. Um, it's really difficult. Um, I applaud the government for trying. I also applaud the government for shelving things while they think mm. through this. Um, mm. And maybe we won't get back to this. I don't know. Um, but uh, just because something's tough doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing it. And uh, we just need, if we are going to do this, we need really to do so with very open eyes and to be very sure we've consulted widely and really, really carefully understand what it is that mm. we're trying to do. Mm. Um, uh, so it it is difficult. Um, I, I don't see a lot of successful examples around the world as yet. Um, mm-hmm. I, I understand where the motives are coming from. Um, I value social cohesion and active um, uh, divisions uh, being created by hate speech are not, are not good, particularly if they're there to enshrine advantage of, of one population over another or one group over another. Um, but whether this is something that's amenable to the law, I'm not sure. And uh, uh, I guess over time as a society we'll come to a view, yes or no, on that. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, I think that provides a fantastic place to, to jump off here. Thank you for your time, uh, Dr. Grant Gelford, former Vice-Chancellor of uh, Victoria University. We appreciate your time and, and, and the leadership that you have shown uh, in, in New Zealand and in the tertiary space to, to continue to enable us to have our basic freedom, which is to be able to disagree and, and hopefully, as you're saying there, not just to disagree, but to move forward together as well. So thanks very much. And thank you to our listeners for joining us again. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Ka kite anō.